I'm not sure how long the pregnant pause is allowed to go on for. So uh, See, you the, can, the you beautiful can edit thing it out, about so. podcasting versus live radio yeah. is that you can is, edit it out exactly. Excellent. So you could take Excellent. you could take a full two minutes, five minutes. <laughs> you could go for a coffee mm-hmm. or a washroom break and come back, <laughs> and it's all good. Uh, let me think. I'm Todd Lyons. I'm Natalie Crandall. I'm Valeria Sosa. And I'm Dana Landry. And this is the Innovate On Demand podcast. It can be daunting, even depressing, to be a person with an idea inside a massive organization. After all, what can one individual do to affect change from within? On this episode of Innovate on Demand, Dana Landry asks us to consider the power of one. Welcome, Dana. We're very happy to have you here. Um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about yourself to start. Thank you. Um, I'm very pleased to be here. So I'm a senior policy analyst. I work with Crown Indigenous Relations and Northern Affairs Canada. Uh, I've been with that department for almost 13 years, um, the duration of my federal career to this point. Wow. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm here to talk about um, individual innovation. Individual innovation. That sounds really interesting. What exactly would you say is individual innovation? Well, I think it's pretty interesting. So uh, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully others will, fo- will follow suit. Um, so when I'm talking about individual innovation, I'm talking about not relying on systemic change in order to um, find a better way or to uh, address those micro irritants that we all face within our work. Being aware of of what your surroundings are and what your what your gap stop measures are, but also ways to increase your productivity and your ability to network with other employees, to um, build more awareness and competence into your daily skills, but within the system as well. Can you give me a, for instance, on a micro irritant? I think probably the best example of a micro irritant are the systemic pathways that we are all engaged with. So we'll talk about the briefing process. Let's. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Everybody hold on to your chairs. So I think um, in terms of a, of a micro irritant, we all have those sort of uh, nuances, right? Like we talk about how um, the workforce is changing. Telework is becoming more and more popular. People are being asked to step outside of what they see as the norm for a public servant. But they're not given the tools to really do that in a way that eases the burden, so you're fine to to write a briefing note from your from your home from your home office or you know wherever you are because we have that Citrix capability, but what we lack is the physical docket running capability in the electronic realm. We don't we don't do that. So we create a system where we allow for micro innovation, but not complete in the cycle. So it it just becomes an irritant that, you know, I I can work from wherever I am as long as I have internet connectivity, but I can't actually fulfill my Mm -hmm. entire duty without having somebody in the office. To do your dirty work. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) To do the legwork for me, literally to do the legwork. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. I'd never thought of that. Mm. Um, Can you think of anything else? I think 
Well, for me in particular, and it's a major irritant, but it, it, it's really displayed in a sort of a a micro (laughs) way, um, is the level of, of cultural competence within the department, within my department in particular. Um, and I say that because I'm an indigenous person and I find many, many times that our department is not particularly able to ensure that part of the hiring mechanism is the ability to display cultural competence. So we end up with people who are, are very good at their work. I mean, there's, it's not a question of, of competence in that regard, but it's a question of understanding how the work that you do at your desk um, affects a community and affects an actual human being. So we are disconnected and for me, that's an irritant because we don't we don't actually recognize that the human factor is so much more of what of what we do each day. Um, so we become desensitized to the plight of human beings. Have you contributed to making that better in a in a way uh, like within as much as you can control as an individual? Um, as much as I can control as an individual, yes, I do feel like I'm I'm making strides for change. Um, and I know that there are many Indigenous public servants, particularly within my department, that do, uh, you know, off the side of their desk, serve to, I'm going to use a word I don't like, indigenize. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can come back to that in a minute. But um, so many public servants are taking this approach where, you know, part of, of education within the system is to educate your colleagues, is to, you know, be mindful of of how you do your work and and for whom you're doing your work. And when you're faced with an individual within your organization, perhaps the person who sits beside you or, you know, someone who shares the table at lunch with you, and you know that that person comes from a, a culturally different background from you and a different way of life and, and, you know, the bundle that they bring into the building with them is theirs alone. And you don't need to know what's in their bundle. You don't need to understand every facet of their life. You just need to recognize that, the work that they do is being done with a different lens than the work that you do. So you recognize that you're all bringing a bias with you. But if we are conscious of that application, we have an opportunity to change the system without having to have this grandiose approach. And, and you know, we don't have to be saying the term innovate, 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 because we're, we're doing it. I'm fascinated by this articulation of the the individual innovation. And as you're talking, it's sort of uh, hitting me. What would you say is the first step for an individual to kind of, uh, I guess, I guess really change their mindset around this? I feel like it comes down to maybe one of two things. And I could be completely wrong here. Maybe it's a third or fourth that you think of. But it's like it's a sort of a, a, a juxtaposition of a methodology and a philosophy. And I don't know what you, what you think about that. I would I would agree completely with that. And I think one of the tools that my team in particular has been working to develop, um, and it's been going on for quite some time now, is um, it's a intersectional policy development model. So it looks at the traditional policy development cycle, and at every juncture, it accounts for gender bias, it accounts for uh, indigenous perspective, it accounts for intersections of sex and gender, it accounts for a variety of mechanisms that serve to other people. So by, by addressing it right from a systems base, we've created um, this capacity to create systematic change and not just 
to have that micro change. So by implementing micro level change within an, within an individual's work and how they perform their work, we're actually creating systemic change. And that really is the fundamental principle, which actually brings me to the point of indigenization. Because to me, the term indigenization means that we are indigenizing something that is um, pre-existing. But the problem with that is that the system of business, the way that we operate within the federal government, is is inherently broken. So from my own yeah. perspective, I don't want to indigenize a system that's flawed. I want to implement a fulsome system that actually does what it's intended to do properly the first time so that no band-aids are required. So we don't have to have this GBA specific lens where, you know, you check the box on your treasury board submission, you have to go through your, you know, your your GBA area to ensure that you've um, reflected that context within your work. It's already baked into the system. And that teaches people how to recognize that their bias, although relevant to the work that they perform, is actually just one part of the equation. So it's it's the bias that you recognize within yourself. It's understanding that there are many different characteristics that are, you know, are part of your colleagues and part of the, the population that you support, part of their realities. But it's also recognizing that by using a system that is not flawed, you have the opportunity to create real innovation because you're serving real people. Yeah. That's interesting. What you're looking at is complete mindset mm -hmm. shift. Absolutely. And uh, so I'm just going to, I'm going to plug because I'm working with the public service renewal team right now. So I'm just going to ask you um, because it's been on my, on my mind quite a bit. So um, are you familiar with the beyond 2020 framework and for public service renewal and that they're looking at mindsets and behaviors changes in, in that perspective? Yes. I'm, I'm not well-versed in it. Okay. I can, you know, tell you that honestly, um, mm -hmm. but I am aware of, of the concept and what they're trying to work toward. Um, mm -hmm. I do, I support it. I think it's, it's, um, it's an active approach to change. Yeah. I was, I, well, and that's what I was going to ask you. I was going to ask you what you thought about that, about just, you know, they're looking at agile, inclusive, and equipped. But if we mm -hmm. just look at it from a bigger perspective, mm -hmm. the mere fact that the government is focusing on mindsets and behaviors, um, to me, is uh, is pretty huge. Oh, it's, it's massive because it's recognizing that um, the work of a public servant is not a paper-based exercise. You know, we support human beings, and that needs to be tantamount in our approach to our work. Because if we don't understand that at the end of our pen is the life of a Canadian, of a human being, mm -hmm. or a community, or um, a municipality, or a province, or, you know, whatever the case may be, regardless of how big it gets, the point is, is that if we can't see that human factor in the work that we're doing every day, then we're not looking deep enough. We're not really affecting change. <laughs> We're part of the machinery at that point. So when people, you know, they, they play out their career, they get to the end and they're, and they're saying, oh, you know, I'm just going to coast a little bit now. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm at my 28-year mark. And, and that's fine. You know, people, they need to reacclimatize to, to the reality of their life within those coming years. But they are still a part of the machinery. And as long as they're recognizing that that machinery involves their perspective, that their perspective as a senior public servant is very important. So it's not to say that 
that the work that they've done counts for nothing. It's it's to recognize that no matter where you are within your career, that the power of change is at the end of your pen. And everyone has that capacity, no matter what your role is or what your job is within the system, you have that capacity for change. And I think that that's part of what often is missing in our innovative strategy. Like when we say that term, innovation, you know, when we say to people, oh, go and, and bring me something innovative. I've heard that several times. Let's make this innovative. Well, I'm not a trained circus performer. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't perform on cue. I, I need to think. I can't need to innovate on demand. Exactly. Uh, I can't. Have to retitle the show now. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'll try to be a more compliant guest next time. <laughs> sorry, I had to I had to do that. No, no, of course. Of course, but it's it's very it's very real. Mm-hmm. You know, like mm-hmm. you cannot innovate on demand. You can action manage a crisis on demand. But when you think about innovation and really what that means, it's you know, it's not just about doing it differently. It's about all of those small pieces that build up to this place of, oh, we've really made an impact here. Or, wow, you know, this has really changed the way that we do business. And part of that for me is that every individual employee really needs to comprehend the strength of their pen and how that their work, no matter what they do within the institution, is extremely valid to this concept of holistic innovation. Let me ask you, do you, in the years that you've been at the public service and the years that you've been at CERNA, or what was INAC, or what was ANSI? um, I get confused too. (laughs) Is there an example that sort of sticks out of someone or something that sort of happened that really inspired change and it was just such a small thing? I think one of the things that's really sort of served to change my perspective on things and to recognize the value um, that each individual plays within the organization and how that individual role is so important for global change is to look at how we've, over the years, managed issues of mental illness. Um, and in particular for me, this is one that, that you know, it hits really close to home. You know, I'm not embarrassed to say who I am. Part of my makeup is that I I have a depressive illness. I manage it, sometimes better than others. But, you know, in 13 years within the same department, I have seen the management of mental illness take a real turnaround. And I think for me, one of the most poignant things that I've seen within my career was the wellness framework was released last year, the um, mental health in the workplace. I can't remember what the title Mm -hmm. is, and Mm -hmm. I apologize for that. But our associate deputy minister uh, introduced the the launch, and she spoke very personally about a friend of hers and a friend who would who had suffered from from depression. And it was so refreshing to see that very humanized content. Whereas, for the most part, in my in the previous parts of my career, it was very much an issue of. Just don't say anything about it. You know, it's fine to be depressed. It's fine to know that your colleague is upset. It's fine to not be yourself today, but just don't talk about it because Mm -hmm. it makes people uncomfortable and people don't know what to say to you. So it's just better if, you know, like if we just largely ignore that, um, that facet of, of human beings altogether. So that I think to me was a very pivotal moment in recognizing that no matter who you are within the organization. You are at the end of the day and at the beginning of the day, a human being. 
And if that perspective is not ingrained into both the work of the institution as well as the work of the employee, you've failed. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't agree more. I'd, I'd like to go back to something really interesting that you said. Oh, um, boy. Around, uh, you were talking about indigenization uh, of a flawed system. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. one of the things that that, I guess, brings to my mind, again, is coming back to this juxtaposition between a methodology or a philosophy or maybe an alignment, mm -hmm. I guess, uh, of, a, of a methodology and, an align and, a, and a philosophy is that mm -hmm. I don't think I understand the concept of a non-flawed system. I think. Mm -hmm. For me, it's like everything we do, we can never say to ourselves, well, this is it. We're done. We we accomplished it. I feel like this concept of continuous improvement and constantly looking at all of our systems, our processes, everything we do with that lens of, is this the best it can be? Is something that, that that's really, I think, particularly important in government because our ability to nail things the first time sometimes is... <laughs> compromised, mm -hmm. I guess we could mm -hmm. say. Yeah. No, I think you're absolutely right. And I agree completely. There will never be a perfect system. Yeah. And that's the beauty of this is that, you know, because each individual person brings their perspective, it's very difficult to duplicate that. So when we change a system, and that's the nice part about systemic change is that because systemic change doesn't have to be finite and really shouldn't ever be finite, you do have the capacity to continue to implement mitigating strategies. So if you change the system um, all told by instituting the recognition of bias and the intersection of various predicaments as a, a systemic baseline, then as your baseline grows and changes, you have the ability to recognize where you're, where you're finding a gap or where your process doesn't quite take into, into account the, the micro issue that you're dealing with. So if an individual public servant is given not only the skills and the abilities, but the absolute mindset that they hold within their hand the key to implementing change in a systemic way by operating under their own principles and, and you know, recognizing that the term well, it doesn't work, but that's the way that we do it here, is never accepted. By recognizing that that doesn't exist anymore, that we have advanced so far past that maintaining the status quo perspective, that each individual employee is an actual agent of change and has the capacity and the tools and the approval to provide that input and say, the system is broken because of X. We need to implement Y. Um, so that's where you know, this concept of, of systemic change really is never going to be finite. And right. if it is instituted in a way that is finite, then you've failed. You've failed right. immediately from the onset because you're not recognizing the value of change and the value of perspective. Because and that constant iterative change absolutely. that is the result of everybody's contributions. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that that's part of something that is lacking in the system because of the size of that mm -hmm. system, yeah. you know, and even when you break the federal family into its departmental entities, some ministries are, are quite small, but, but my ministry, the former INAC is massive and systemic change is, is virtually impossible within this organization. So if you don't have a way 
to offer at least an attempt to indigenize um, a system that is flawed, then you're completely without any tools at all. And I think that that's part of why there is such a churn within the former INAC, within Crown Indigenous Relations. Two things happen. One, you become desensitized to the population that we serve. Um, And you start to see things that are totally unacceptable as being normal because you start to take on the perspective of, I can't change it because I don't have the personal power to change it. And the second thing that happens is that you start to see your role within the institution as simply your role within the institution. It becomes you being a cog in the machine. You are no longer required to think independently. You are no longer required to say, that's wrong. You are no longer required to say, why are we doing it that way? You just become caught up in the mechanics of your position, of your post. And when they started... um, centralizing all the qualifications. Uh, I'm in the EC category. So I know from, you know, my own personal experience, what the EC category took on. And it was this way to ensure that you had lateral transferability across the federal sector based on simply your category and, and level. But it didn't take into account the population that you serve. It didn't take into account the environment in which you work. It didn't take into account any of your subject matter expertise that would either serve to, you know, propel or cripple the work that you do. So when we perpetuate this system, because it's easier then to move employees from this post to that post, we've lost that fundamental perspective of individual intersectionality and bias. Yeah, well, and it, it all is part and parcel with part of some of the the bigger issues, I think, that we are facing across the government. Everything in how we manage our human resources mm-hmm. is around describing work, mm-hmm. right? And really, when we look at the future, and, and you mentioned the topic of the future of work, what that looks like, what teleworking looks like, we really need to start describing our people. Mm-hmm. Like this is, this is, it's all about people first. Um, and, and we need to get to that point where we're actually able to, to start having that kind of a conversation. I think that's the paradigm in our HR that's going to mm-hmm. help us achieve those other goals. I think so. And I think really in particular in that regard, um, what needs to happen is more of a, of a, a longer term vision. You know, like we invest in employees on a yearly basis. We create a, a performance management agreement based on a year. We talk about their educational attainment that can happen within a year. Um, But what happens after that year is just a renewal of that system. So if we took a system where we um, brought an employee into the organization and planned out the next five years of their career, and I'm not just talking about you're going to go to the Canada School and you're going to take a course on how how government works, uh, and then you're going to come back and you're going to share that information with your team, and then you're going to go back to your job and you're going to do the same things you did before. You might Uh, be able to implement a subtle nuance. But for the most part, it's going to be you, the employee, performing their their tasks. So if we take that system away and say, this is your career development plan. It's a five-year plan. Year one, there's a check-in. Year three, there's a check-in. And year five, you either have completed your plan or there are areas that need improvement. Because then in those five years, you haven't just allowed somebody to to gain a notch on their on their belt of expertise at the EC5 or the EC3 level you've actually taught them 
the tools that they need, not only for their position, not only for their next position, but two or three positions down the road, and potentially even that transition into to the EX, into the management realm. So you're actually creating more diverse and skilled employees because you're teaching them how to operate within this system, but also how to mitigate issues of change and, and to be agents of change because you've invested in them. Mm-hmm. So how closely do you think that somebody's manager needs to be related? Like what you're talking about is people management. Uh, it's a beautiful vision, by mm-hmm. the way. Just oh, wanted to you. let you know. <laughs> I, I'm always on top of uh, – I'm always on board with anything where we can uh, we can change how we manage people, which mm-hmm. I think is the greatest resource mm-hmm. that oh, we have absolutely. here in, our, in the federal government. Um, so how do you envision being able to – manage employees through career development over five years when probably our mobility requirements for employees and things like that aren't going to have that person in the same job that whole time. And that's kind of a, um, a, the plus and minus of our system, right? Is that it's very easy for somebody to to go through the motions of of the career ladder progression. It's very easy to do yeah. that. But the person that's being cheated in that regard is the employee themselves. Of course. Because they're not getting what they need. And their job satisfaction is based on that next rung, you know, get to the next level, get to the next level, make the next uh, jump. But when you get to that plateau, what happens to you? That's when you have to start looking at yourself and internalizing, where do I want to be? How do I make this happen? Do I have all of the tools in my toolbox? Do I have all the skills that I require? So when I think of this this plan, this visioning cycle, I think it's very difficult to ascribe the responsibility for it to one individual Um, because that individual, much like every individual within the public service, is transitory. There's, There's no clear indication that that individual is going to be there in a year or six months or, and you don't know what's going to happen. So I think for my own personal reflection that the, the easiest way to manage a system where, where employees have a longer term vision is to ingrain it into the system. So you make it part of your baseline, um, HR corporate function and you manage it through a third party. It doesn't need to be a third party exterior to the government. It just needs to be a third party who isn't the manager or the employee who can provide a, a non-biased perspective on the situation and say, oh, these are the things that you've, um, you, yeah, you really knocked that right out of the park. Like well, if every employee had a talent manager, let's absolutely. say, who wasn't their hiring manager. Absolutely. Who wasn't their hiring manager and who wasn't their day-to-day um, person that they report to. Yeah. Simply because that system only recognized the skills of the hiring manager or the the direct report and not the skills of that level completely. You know, if you find um, you find a, a manager, you happen to be so lucky to work under a manager who has a real knack for big P policy, long-term vision. This is the most excellent situation you can find yourself in. If you do ever find yourself in a place where your direct report talks about long-term vision, talks about the steps that need to happen in order for big level change, hold on to that person and learn everything that you can from them because they are so instrumental. We as an institution don't utilize the genius that is big P policy. We are so trapped in this micro approach, 
in this, what are we going to do tomorrow? What do we need to have done by the end of the day? What's the vision for next week? That we have lost sight of the fact that there is an end game here. So with the creation of Indigenous Services Canada, to me, that's a clear example of where, for the most part, people have looked around and thought, we need an end game. And that end game is the devolution of, of, services, of services and programs to Indigenous organization or aggregates. That's the concept behind the, the creation of, of Indigenous services. But to me, that says, we've really looked at this long term. We've looked at what it is that's broken and, and why we need to fix it and how are we going to get there. So we've established a goal. But in a system where we don't recognize an individual's ability to grow and change within the organization, we've lost them. So if you have this five-year vision plan and you give employees the opportunity to grow their language skills, to grow their policy development skills, to understand what program application means, and to really be part of a cycle of change, they can see how their micro-innovation is absolutely crucial to the perpetual motion of the system itself. I love what you're saying. And I think it also speaks to being able to mobilize the right types of people um, when you have a specific objective or a vision in mind and realizing that if you want to accomplish A, then now we need a different type of, pe- of person here. Um, and it's about timing. And one of the issues with our system, what I always found, was the rigidity and the inability to be flexible in all of this. When I came in from the private sector, small businesses from Montreal, and I started working uh, in public service, there was quite a few things that really just hit me really strongly. But one of the things was I realized they don't care, or my impression at the time was that the big they weren't motivated to have the right people in the right jobs at the right time at all. Whereas when you're running a small business, you can't afford not to have the right people in the right job at the right time. And you move them around and you develop them as you need to fulfill your big picture vision that you need to accomplish. And as a government, we completely lost sight of all of that. I do feel that we're slowly kind of getting there though. Yeah. I feel like actually what we're talking about right now is talent management. Mm-hmm. And and really what what the game changer is is there's performance management, there's career coaching, there's career development. But once you start going to talent management, you're actually starting to think about a it's back to that how are we describing people? Because talent management inherently includes the concept of there's also a need that the enterprise needs to have filled, right? And there's the concept of matching and there's the concept of data. So if we come back to, oh, you're looking at now we're starting to map skills and competencies of an employee, right? And we can start thinking about, hmm, instead of describing the pieces of work that need to be done, what skills and competencies do I need to hire for? Now we're starting to talk about talent management, and that gives us the ability to say, I actually have a whole different system and process and mentality around what that best fit means and how do I actually get the right people in the right place at the right time. Um, You said some really interesting things, uh, Val. You talked about the objective or the vision in mind. You talked about the timing and the flexibility. All of those things are the outputs that we can expect as we start actually doing talent management. 
um, coming back full circle to what you were saying, which is if an employee has a talent manager who's not their hiring manager, then all of a sudden we start having this concept of developing our workforce in a completely different way, which doesn't take away from the people and leadership management we do for people who are actually working. That happens also from their hiring managers and from the leadership of the places where people work. And once we start moving towards that system, I actually think that's where we have the actual possibility to make some very serious changes in how we do things in the public service. Mm -hmm. And I I agree with you. And I think really, um, Valeria, to your point with regard to uh, the small business, that is absolutely why the small business – is able to either succeed or fails. It's because that human element is is there. It's right in their face. You know, they no they don't hire you because of your sparkling personality. That's a bonus. Well, they might. <laughs> but that's the bonus that comes with with the skills that you have to do the work. So in the public service, part of the issue is that it's just too big. And we know that. And I think that that's um, very evident in many of our of our processes as, and in our policies is that we are, you know, we are designing a system that needs to speak to the absolute mass of masses, but is removed enough from individual characteristics that it doesn't become a, mm-hmm. you know, a sort of nepotistic style of, of management and career development and, and placement. Um, but yet, still recognizes that there are values in having someone who is particularly gregarious and, and outgoing and friendly and, you know, um, adapts um, beautifully to new situations in a position that requires those skills, those soft skills behind the hard skills that they need to actually do the work of that position. So it's, you know, it's not just recognizing that, oh, I have a box that needs to be filled. No, I have a a need for an outgoing people person who has the ability to, you know, implement a full policy cycle. But, you know, the critical factor is the human characteristics. Those are the essential requirements that I need. And there's no reason why, aside from, you know, meeting the the hard requirements of a position, so the educational requirement, um, you know, which are quite flexible, you know, there are many facets to to hiring um, essential qualifications that can be changed and, and augmented to fit what it is that you're looking for. And I think part of the thing that we're seeing now in the public service is that people are being very candid in their um, in their call outs for staffing. You know, they're talking about the dynamics of their workplace. They're talking about how the institution operates. They're talking about the personalities that they're looking for. And by writing those things within your your um, you know your SOMCs, you're actually giving employees an opportunity to say, "Hey, I really sparkle in that area, and I'm more than just my ability to, you know, implement a great uh, program." So those soft skills and hard skills are becoming of value to an employer as well. Thank you. This has been a, a great a great chat and super interesting. And I think we should also uh, invite Dana back. <laughs> at some point so we could keep having this conversation mm-hmm. well, um, i'd love to come back it's been yeah, great yeah. it's been a great talk um but uh, any final thoughts uh before we we wrap up my my one final thought would be to say to people um if you are a public servant do not limit yourself to the the phrase i can't mm-hmm. just do it just do it you know pull a page out of nike and just do it and you will always always have an easier time asking for forgiveness than you will for asking for permission. So if it's in your mind and you feel like this is 
imperative to the work you do or your ability to remain within the confines of your position, do it. Thank you very much, Dana. No final, final thoughts? No final, final thoughts. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Innovate On Demand, brought to you by the Canada School of Public Service. Our music is by Grapes. I'm Todd Lyons, producer of this series. Thank you for listening. Thank you.